um, my wife and I and the entire family in the middle of December uh, came down with Omicron on top of full vaccination. And uh, it was incredibly mild, thankfully. Um, but I've been struggling with my voice. I'm leading worship next weekend. So Jesus, help. Amen. How amazing was that worship? Anybody? Yeah, come on. It was so special. Thanks for having us. My beautiful wife, Melissa, sends heaps of love. She sadly was unable to come. We are laden with a fruitful home. Uh, we have four kids. Uh, um, Zoe is in her last year of school. Gabriel is proudly and uh, very blessed to be a Liverpool supporter. I just see an Arsenal shirt there. God bless you. God bless you. Uh, that's perfect. Thanks, Brucey. A few Man United supporters here. We pray, God, for revival in Manchester United. Last night we were at an elders get-together and I was checking the, the football score and Liverpool went one down to Norwich, for goodness sake. And I was getting a wee bit nervous and a little bit distracted at, at this important moment and then very thankful that when I turned my phone on again to check, we had won 3-1. So I just want to say thank you, Lord, for Liverpool. Anyway, love Liverpool. It's a real treat to be with you, Brent. As a dear friend, we go all the way back to the United Kingdom. We were a part of a wonderful church there. And he and his wife moved over uh, four years ago. Yeah, Brent and Jen. Recently, uh, Brent and Jen, together with uh, three others, were ordained as pastors in Freedom House. It took a long time. You know, you can't rush these things. And, and uh, we're doing good. It's really good to see. How are you? And the rest of you, you can nod your head. This is not a school hall. We can participate. Say hello to somebody, please. Why don't we stand up? I just feel like we need to do this, if you don't mind. Just say hello. Fist pump, elbow pump, knee pump. No headbutts, please. No headbutts. This is church. There we go. Last time I was here, I wasn't using these, Kelvin. Middle age has got a hold of me. The eyes are fading, but the heart is pumping. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you thanks for your kingdom, your power, and your glory. We thank you for your ferocious, breathtaking, kind, and gracious love towards us. We thank you for Lifehouse. Thank you what you have done these past near 13 years. And we thank you that with you, we go from glory to glory. So we thank you for your presence today. Would you come and speak to every single one of us? You know who we are, where we are, and what situation we find ourselves in. So would you take the words that we would speak today, and would you transform our lives not to look like any branded Christianity, no leader in the church, but change us to be like you, King Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you as God. Come and lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to say that you have made a very good decision to begin to preach through Hebrews. We have 
since I would say March last year, been swirling in the incredible breadth and beauty of the book of Hebrews. We are about to wrap it up, so it'll take about, it will have been about a year of marinating in Hebrews. I cannot think of a more poignant, prophetic book in the Bible right now than Hebrews. Why do I say that? Simply because it was written in a time of extreme persecution and extreme crisis. We look back at our own last two years. Who's loved it? Anybody? I have not liked it at all. All right? Jolly well masks and, you know, all those things. And yet, I'm quite happy to wear them for all the right reasons. However, we have endured in the last two years an incredible sense of crisis where everything has been shaking in our lives. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just the north coast, north of Durban. But I have no doubt that that's the case here in Gauteng where everything that can be shaken has been shaken. And so the author to the Hebrews, whomever it was, it certainly wasn't Paul, uh, writes to a people under severe pressure, under a great crisis, where everything was shaking and quaking. And what I love about it is this. The author's antidote to crisis is not there, there, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't water it down. Crisis is real. Persecution is intense. They were losing their homes. They were being strung up, drawn, and courted. They were losing their lives, and he didn't treat it with disrespect. He appreciated it, but the antidote was to turn their gaze to the king. The antidote is to turn their gaze to the king. And in this time, as you've chosen to journey through Hebrews, you are partaking with the same reality. As some of your lives are facing all sorts of crises, etc., the antidote is not to reduce the beauty and the majesty of the kingdom of God and the power of who our Christ is to our circumstance, but to lift our gaze and to let our lives be transformed by the one that we see. I think of that moment in Job's life. Remember, he was losing everything. Who loves reading Job? I don't. But there is a very precious, powerful moment where in the midst of all his wise counselors, don't you love Job's wise counselors? Very well-educated life experience. They think they know what to say, but it's the worst thing they could ever say. Isn't that true for our lives in a moment of crisis? We seem to surround ourselves with people who think they're saying the right stuff. And we get stuck in a moment and we can't get out of it. All right? And then a young man who has been biding his time, watching Job's situation, allowing those older with life experience and know-how, etc., 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 to have their say, and he could not take it anymore because they were saying all the right things in human wisdom but carried no heavenly power to intervene and to rip Job out of the circumstance that he found himself in. And this young man, Elihu, he rises up like a roaring lion and he says, Stop! And consider God! It's like Job needed somebody to grab him by the scruff of his neck and say, stop it, enough of this, enough earthly, worldly wisdom from people who, who you have respect for. 
I do respect people. Caveat. But enough. Stop looking at human earthly wisdom. The only way through is up. God. And it's as if through the book of Hebrews, in their moment, the writer, as they were wanting to abandon the faith and go back, You see, Judaism was an easy out. It was recognized by the rulers and the politicians of the day. They had a working agreement, but the followers of the way were considered atheists. They were not those who would confess Caesar as king. They had an anthem. And you know what their anthem was? Jesus is Lord. And while they were being beaten and bruised, having homes taken away, and in the Colosseum, uh, lions and tigers and ligers and all scary things were coming at them, they would stand their ground and they would never confess Caesar as king. And as they were having their lives taken, they would confess with their lips, Jesus is Lord. So like Elihu, And like the book of Hebrews, it is a spiritual, I nearly said circumcision, and I did, uh, incision, a spiritual incision to cut through all the contention, all the fear, all the crisis, and the antidote is Him. And the book of Hebrews starts with the worth of Jesus. And the author gets so caught up in the pre-incarnate Christ the majestic one, the one who is far greater than the angels, far greater than, the, than Moses. And that was a big deal for those listening to that message. But then it moves on to the kind of king and the kind of leader we can follow. The one who knows what it's like to be under pressure, pushing down on me, pushing down on you. And it's not David Bowie. It's Jesus. The kind of king who has scars, Do you know that we have a man in glory, his name is Jesus, who has scars on his hands? Reflective, that faith is not being a cowboy, it's enduring through all things, and we keep pushing on. Things are going to get better, they won't take, that's a part of my history, a little bit of house music coming out every now and again. And then it moves on from the worth of Jesus, to the works of Jesus. The reason why we get through is because we have one who has been through it all and gives us a limitless supply to keep pushing on. And one of the things that God is delivering the church from at this time is a victim mentality, which says, oh gosh, my circumstances are so heavy and hectic, I can't get through because we think that we need to get through with our own ability. And the book of Hebrews and the power of the gospel is to say, take your eyes off of yourselves, Job, church, whatever it may be, whomever it may be, and fix your gaze on him who has a limitless supply. Come on. This is not rah-rah. This is simply the gospel. And if you are sitting here today thinking, I can't get through this, I can't make it through this next phase, well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the right stuff. Because in the gospel revealed in Hebrews is a king who is worthy and a king who has shown us that we have the goods, we have the muscle memory of Jesus inside of us, that in an instant we can respond rightly because he's alive in us. But it closes off, and that's where we are 
at Freedom House, the worth of Jesus, the work of Jesus. And we are finishing off with something that is crucial, the way of the King. Because right now in crisis, as we are coming out of this really challenging time, one of two things can take place. Number one, we can hide away in a, in a ghetto lager mentality because of fear and intimidation and all those kinds of things. And let me say there is healthy fear and then there is the spirit of fear. Healthy fear, as Lou and I were, Louise and I were talking the other day, sorry. Uh, healthy fear is like this. I haven't served for seven months. I've been studying too hard. And I, I've been a little bit sick and I've been recovering. And the other day at, at uh, the north coast, at Salt Rock Main Beach, it was double overhead surf. The cyclone was beginning to push through and it was big. I haven't surfed six to eight foot surf for quite some time. And I haven't been boxing. So my fitness is a bit down. And when I'm standing on that beach, there is a healthy fear. I've got to make sure that I push under properly lest I drown. That's a healthy fear. I'm trying to drive along these roads, healthy fear. You know, jeepers. Yeah. It's hectic, man. How tingalings, man, what's going on here? But then there is an irrational spirit of fear that comes out of nowhere, that makes no sense, that doesn't prepare us to live, but cripples us so that we don't live. That's the one challenge coming out of this time. The other challenge is to throw off restraint. Because we haven't been able to do what we want to do for two jolly years. And now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I want to say that is equally dangerous than the first. Now the way of the king is to say this. That we have been called. We have been chosen. We have been set apart not to live our own lives for our own reputations and our own glory. But to live powerfully in times of upheaval to posture our lives following Jesus close in beside him so his kingdom would come. What the world needs right now, we do need economic transformation. We do need a, a reconciliation. We need all of that, but we need the kingdom breaking in. If you are here today and you're here for the first time and you think we're all crazy, welcome. We are. We have found the one who is so wild, who is so incredible, who does not, does not live by the standards of this day and leads us through it while we live in it. His name is Jesus, and he's called us to follow the way of the king. And at Freedom House, we are rediscovering the fact that Jesus, before he is Savior, he is Lord. Everybody wants the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we all want the kingdom without a king. And we cannot have the kingdom without the king. And so in these times, as you baptizing yourself in Hebrews, remember that. He's calling us out of fear. And he's calling us out of living for our own vainglory. How's that for an old school King James word? to follow the way of the king. I want to pull today on a particular topic that you're going to stumble into in Hebrews, the, the concept of the tabernacle or the temple. When I say temple right now, some of you with your traditional upbringing will think of temples, typical temples, sanctuaries, beautiful cathedrals, etc., etc., with beautiful stained glass windows, beautiful brick and mortar, and that has some validity. 
But when we read the scriptures, it means something different. Others, when we talk about tabernacle and temple, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about soaking sessions, glory outpourings, revival sessions. And there's some validity to that, but it's not exactly what the temple is all about. In the Hebrews chapter 8 to 9, we see the progression of Christ, the high priest, taking us into the temple. But the statement of the temple or the tabernacle is something so profound. It's about royal real estate. It's about, as some clever people call, cosmic geography. It is not a statement first of presence or of place. It is a statement of the rulership of the king of, of all kings upon the earth. And I want to have a look at that in a minute. Let's start with a few thoughts. My brother is one of my heroes. He's five years older than me. He's shorter than me. Um, but he has incredible stature. 13 years ago, and I've uh, sought permission to, to share this story uh, because it's his. 13 years ago, in a time of worship, he encountered the Lord in a profound way. And God gave him a blueprint to transform primary health care in the entirety of Africa. HIV tuberculosis, malaria, and other related primary health care issues. 13 years ago, his company was involved in that already, but he was only working in certain areas. It was successful. It was growing. And in all of that success and growth, God met with him. 20 Armstrong Avenue, Lelusia. And he said to him, my boy, I want you to stop building the brand of Mark. I want you to hear that. Walking with Jesus, successful, making a difference. But he had been seduced into building the brand of Mark. At that stage, repayments on his car, as much as my rental right now. So not lacking in moolah, coin, matcha, kids at private schools, all these fancy things. Now my brother is serious about following the Lord. And so he took that to heart and he sold his fancy vehicle and his wife's fancy vehicle to buy a polo entry level for his wife. And he went, and I would take this car by the way, an entry level Fortuna. He started unraveling his life by the Spirit of God because he began to realize that there was something more important than building his business and building his personal brand. It was the kingdom of God. Through that process, God not only was delivering him from himself, when I was chasing after my now wife, you know, Spading. Remember, remember that word, spading. Hey, put in a good word for me. You remember that at the beach, you'd be sitting there. Hey, listen, put in a good word for me. You know, when I was chasing Melissa and doing my utmost, even though she wanted uh, T-Savs and Feldskins, that wasn't me. She would say, because I was pretty intense about a few things, she'd say, Ryan, pull yourself towards yourself and get over yourself. Best advice I ever received in my life, Ian, I promise. So that's what was going on with Mark. God was delivering himself, Mark, of himself so that he could get over himself and get on with the kingdom of God. But equally at the same time, he was preparing him for crisis because what came his way was pretty much the loss of his company. You hear this? 
in the midst of losing absolutely everything, nearly lost his home, he threw himself on the king. God supernaturally provided in the most remarkable ways, praying all of his staff salaries every month when there was no money to pay. It's just supernatural for at least two years. And whilst he was going through great loss, because he was no longer building the brand of Mark, but beginning to build the, brand, the, the kingdom of God in his life, people were watching his response. Global corporate leaders who said, hey, I need you. I've been watching your response. And so he went from one level of influence to another. Today, he has an open checkbook backing him, and he's working in 95% of the countries in Africa, fulfilling the 13-year-old dream that he was given in worship. It was nearly lost over that 13-year period. But in it all, he would not capitulate to the way of the world. I'm not going to build a brand of dot, dot, dot. I want to follow you and your kingdom. If we are to see the world transformed, God wants to deliver the church of its self-importance. He wants to deliver us of ourselves and stop building the brand of self and start building the kingdom of God with the king of kings, the way of the king. In prayer a week and a half ago, felt the Lord say, Ryan, in your pursuit to conquer in mission, I want to conquer your heart first. I believe that God in this time is taking back the royal real estate of his people. You might be saying, nice story. What has this to do with the temple? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, and then I'm going to make a few comments. To Psalm 132. It's the psalm of, one of the Psalms of Ascents, where... God's people would, as they walked up to the temple, they would sing a particular anthem, a particular song. And Psalm 132 is powerful and poignant in understanding the nature of the temple. Is it traditional place? Or is it only an outpouring of presence? What does it really mean? Are you with me, Calvin? Nice to meet you, young man. Let's read it together. Lord, remember David and his self-denial. Wow. Psalm 132, it starts with a, a gangbuster statement. Lord, remember David and his self-denial. He, David, swore an oath to Yahweh. When you see the capitals, you know it's not El Shaddai or Elohim or any other. It's Yahweh. Okay. David swore an oath to the Lord. And he made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. Press pause. You need to rem remember who this bloke is. It's David. Who's David? You can work with me. It's not school. He's the king. He's taken from the least of, and he is the last of all, all of his brothers. And he's taken and set apart to be the king of Israel and Judah. And he makes a vow. He makes a singular vow and oath. How many times do we make oaths? Our oaths, I'm going to do this. You remember that? <laughs> or maybe it was just Durban, you know? Our oath, man. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm never going to let that guy down. I'm going to show that oath. You know, I'm going to make sure that no one 
does me over again, and we make all these oaths and vows in our lives. Imagine being the king. What kind of oaths would you make? Ah, oaths, I'm going to take those Philistines output. And those, those oaths of Syria, they're never going to come. I'm going to chop them. I'm going to take them. I oath, I'm going to be the most famous king on the planet, making all sorts of oaths we can. But he makes one vow as the king. His vow is this. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Israel. This is remarkable. One thing I ask, this very one thing I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. David could be doing anything but his singular desire, his one oath, is to deny the building of his own brand, the building of his own reputation, and to seek the glory of the one true King. And whilst he is the king on earth, there is one overarching ruling king, and his name is Yahweh. And he took a decision, I will follow him. I will let no slumber or sleep come to my eyes. In other words, my every waking moment, the every, every breath I take, every move I make, I'm going to live for you. Isn't that incredible? That's why it starts in the first verse. Lord, Yahweh, remember David and all his self-denial. We live in an age right now that is saying, actualize yourself. Come on. Find the real you. Actualize yourself. Go through progressive metamorphosis and actualize who you are inside. And here David is saying, hey, I'm not too interested about me, myself, and Irene. I am obsessed. I am passionate about Yahweh. What a contradiction. The spirit of this age, the secular age in which we live, where every bit of media that comes our way says, you are the most important. It's all about you. It's all about what you desire and what you like. You are the pinnacle of all things. As long as you are happy, it's okay, baby. And here's David, understanding the way of the king, which is altogether different. We live in a day and an age where we've taken it to another step, where God is certainly not king of our homes. And even mom and dad ain't the center of things. It's now our kids. Our kids are everything. We kowtow to the whims and the desires of our children. And we run from pillar to post because we have made Little gods of our children. Now, I have four beautiful kids whom I love with all of my life. But Christ is king in my home. I'm not, and nor are they. How's that feel? It's hard to say. When I say it on the north coast, it's equally quiet. <laughs> and here David's one singular pursuit is not to build his empire, but to seek a place for the mighty one of Jacob. Then, how cool is this? It moves from one crazy, wild lunatic for Yahweh, dancing in his undies, 
And it says this in verse 6. We, it moves from I to we. Because when you have one wild one, it is inevitable that one will become many. We have heard it in all this place, all those pauses. Let us go to His, Yahweh's dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool saying, Arise, Yahweh, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Now, interesting language begins to be used. This is not just about presence. This is something altogether different. Come to your resting place, your seat, all right? You and the ark of your might. What does that speak of? It speaks of power. It speaks of rulership. It speaks of dominion. Now we're getting to grips that when we talk about tabernacle and we talk about temple, it's not just traditional place or outpouring presence. It's actually got to do with who Yahweh is. He is king. And where he rests, where he sits, is his throne. And so the temple and the tabernacle equals the throne of God. Let me say that again. It's not rocket science. We don't need a PhD on this. Temple and throne is not place and it's not presence first. It is his throne. Wow. It's his throne. And this is what happens when a person gets unhinged and is more passionate about the glory of God. A people become unhinged and become passionate about uh, the glory of God. Guess what happens? Look at this. Your priests, may your priests be clothed in righteousness and your faithful people sing for joy. Two things begin to erupt, erupt when we stop building the brand of dot, 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 and we start seeking the way of the king. Righteousness and joy. Yay. Amen. We need a whole lot of joy in the church. And we only found find joy when we give ourselves to Him. It says this in 1 Timothy 6. Well, it's a brutal scripture. It says, Godliness with contentment is of great value. And it's in the context of people pursuing earthly gain. And Paul goes on to say, Hey, when you forget this as a Christian, when you forget this as a believer and you start pursuing secondary, tertiary things as the primary thing, you pierce yourself with many griefs. I, I'm convinced that the church globally is in a place of great grief and a need of great joy and the transition from grief to joy is less about emotional restoration, which is super important. I'm passionate about that stuff. But begins with this. Stop building the brand of Ryan. Stop building the brand of Freedom House. Stop building the brand of dot, dot, dot. And we say, no, I will no longer seek my self-gratification, but seek the glory of God. Righteousness abounds and joy abounds. Are you with me? I'm going to land in three points that are going to rock your planet. Now look at verse 11. David made an oath. He swore our oath. This is my life's passion and pursuit. This is a new day for Lifehouse. You can either shrink back into fear or cast off restraint and do your own thing. But David made one life's purpose his aim. 
and he swore an oath. Now look at verse 11. David swearing an oath, but now God himself swears an oath. The Lord swore an, swore an oath, excuse me, to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, their sons will sit on your throne forever. Press pause. Two things I want to point out to you here. As we seek to establish the kingdom, there is someone who is really good at seeking to establish our lives. But we swap it around. God, listen, I'm just going to establish my life, and won't you bless it? I just want a blessed life. Okay? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to establish my life. Because I'm really good at it. I'm better than you. That's what we're really saying. And what happens? It ends up crumbling. It, it, it's elusive, like soap in, in, a, in wet hands. It's like Hendrik said, we, like castles made of sand fall into the sea. Yo, it's all coming out of me right now. And then I know it's all on. But here is the supernatural principle and that when we seek Him first as the blazing center, seek His glory first, He is better at looking after our lives, our families, and our circumstances than we are. It might not look like what we want that brings glory to moi, but it'll always bring glory to Him and always bring us righteousness and joy. I want to say that first. Secondly, He says, if your son keep the commands and the covenant, then you will have a son on a throne forever. What did, what did Solly do? Solly started off lacquer. You know David's son, Solly? Yeah. Solomon. He started off on the right path, the way of the king, and then he got a little distracted by the birds, you know? He had a few Bettys there and a few ladies there. He, and what followed suit? Exile. But Psalm 132 is speaking of the Son who would follow every command. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I did not come to abolish the law as if the law was this dirty, wicked word. No. I have not come to abolish. It's holy, holy, holy. And it needs to be fulfilled because it says in Deuteronomy that if you fulfill every stipulation of the Lord, Law, blessing, blessing, blessing. If you break one, you're in trouble, but you're in trouble. And Jesus, the Son, comes as the true David, as the true Solomon, who could not fulfill the righteous stipulations and requirements of the law. In Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to make it perfect. I have come to fulfill it equally in every single way. And he does that on our behalf. And he is seated as the true David on the throne for all time. That those who would turn away from living for self and follow Yahweh, the incarnation of Yahweh, Jesus the Christ, okay, would live in all the favor, all the benefits. Nearly done. I'm setting you up. Now it says here, for the Lord has chosen Zion. And has desired her for his dwelling place, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Look at this. When he is enthroned, 
When the king is on his throne in our lives, I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, the God kind of life. And if faithful people will sing for joy forever, party time, excellent, Wayne's world, you know? And then he says, here I will make a horn grow. There's not a rhinoster or an antelope. No, horn is rulership or divine presence. Here in the place where you no longer build your own brand, where you're no longer living for yourself, but you have said Yahweh, Christ on the throne, all right? I will make rulership, life house, new season, rulership and dominion and divine presence extend. And I will set up a light. A light, what does that speak of? Salvation, harvest time. I will set up a light for my anointed one. And I will clothe your enemies with shame, but your head I will adorn with a radiant crown. Psalm 132, three things. How cool is that psalm? Next time you read it, you're going to get pumped. But this is the cool thing. It starts with self-denial. And what does it end with? I'm going to put a, a crown on your head. Look at how God works. We lay it all down, lay it all down for the heart of heaven. And he says, that little crown that you were in pursuit of, that little brand that you were seeking, that little empire that you were building is nothing compared to what I have in store for you. But if you would believe me, if you would trust me and lay your life down, I will give unto you things that you would never ever imagine. Jesus says, why, why in pursuit of the world would you forfeit your soul? Why? Now that speaks of those who are not Jesus followers yet. Why would you follow the ways of the world and then give up your soul? But it's equally true for Christ followers in this day. Where we are giving up our soul in pursuit of brand building and not kingdom building. And it comes with anxiety. It comes with insecurity. It comes with jealousy and competition and ousting people. I have seen so many Christians in the marketplace live for Jesus on Sunday and live like the devil from Monday through Saturday. And they wonder why anxiety is their friend and depression lurks like a foul dark bird on their shoulder. Why? For one reason. We believe that building the brand of dot, dot, dot is the answer to the world's problems. And Psalm 132, explaining the nature of the temple, is this. If you would lay down your life, he will give you and I a crown. He will establish you. Three things. Are you with me so far? This is okay. Number one, three matters to note. Number one, rulership and ownership. Number two, purpose. Number three, people. Number one, rulership and ownership. The temple says that you and I are not king. Let me say that again. When we read temple, you and I are not the king. Yahweh is the king. He is the ruler and owner of all things. That means, who are we? I'll get to that in a minute. In the beginning of time, God creates Project Planet Earth as his temple, his Eden, his temple, the place where he will dwell. And interestingly enough, on the seventh day, he says, Adam, Adam, and Eve, come, 
come rest with me on the first day on the job. The word rest is not to kick up feet and chill and watch some footy or rugger in the afternoon with an ice-cold Coca-Cola. No, it's to fill the temple. It was God on the seventh day saying to Project Planet Earth, I, together with my fellow rulers, are, we are the kingdom of God on earth. Temple says, God is king and we are co-rulers. We are stewards. Can you say steward? We are stewards of what he owns. What a mind bender. Imagine if we lived our lives in where we said, I am not king. This stuff is not my own. It belongs to the king of kings for his command, his commission, and his will. But do you know how we live? No, this is my home. This is my wife or my husband, depending on your sex. This is my, these are my finances. This is my car. This is my holiday. This is my life. Bon Jovi, come alive. It's mine. And then we come to church on Sunday, and if the oak preaches it out of the park, and then we'll say, I'll give you a little bit of what is mine. Can you see how wrecked the church is? It's all upside down, inside out, and everything in between. Because we have not settled in our hearts that he is king of kings, and we are not. Imagine. So when we talk temple, we are saying this. Christ is king, I am not. I am a steward of the one who owns and possesses all things. Secondly, purpose. The temple doesn't just speak about his rulership and ownership. It speaks about our purpose. When God made Adam and Eve in the beginning, he gave them a mandate to rule with them, but to be stewards of an advancing kingdom. Abraham did the same. Abraham, you know, the first thing he did after encountering Yahweh, if you didn't know this, I just want to remind you, Abraham was an occultist. He was a pagan. He was worshiping demons. One of his gods, you would sacrifice children to Molech. All right? Come on. That's Abram. And then Yahweh breaks into his life and he says, turn away. Follow me. And he starts following him. And the first thing he does is he builds an altar. When we see temple and altar, it's about the Lord's rulership and ownership over everything. But look what he did. He started going and establishing God's rulership and ownership over the whole earth. The temple was expanding from Eden to the ends of the earth. What did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, increase, rule, subdue, go into all the earth. Sounds like the Great Commission. The point is this. Temple says we have a vocation that surpasses our career. And it's the call and the commission of Christ. Now imagine this. Imagine if we lived in the first instance saying, God, all that I have is yours to do with as you see fit. And secondly, we say, God, I might be a chef. I might be a politician. I might be a preacher. Wouldn't it be amazing if the preachers started actually following Yahweh and building the kingdom of God and not the brand of dot, dot, dot. Imagine that. Anyway, don't let, let me get distracted by that. You're in, you're in a safe place here, by the way. But imagine if we said, Lord, what would you have me do today? 
Imagine if vocation would inform our career and how we approach our career. But we live with dichotomy. Again, Sunday celebration Sunday. What's Monday? Me, I can do my own stuff. No, it's Mission Monday. And my privilege, our privilege, is to influence those who influence the world. But imagine if we understood what temple was, Kelvin. It's about vocation, that we are meant to advance the kingdom of God and let an informed career. And secondly, it trumps not Donald or Ronald. It trumps comfort. Vocation informs career and trumps our comfort. We say this at Freedom House. God is not really interested in my or your comfort, but he's super, super purposeful about your safety. We try and tone the wild king down into our circumstantial comfort. Keep it here, keep it here, keep it here, you know? I did a sermon, nearly done. You only got me a bit, but I'm nearly done. Did a, did a sermon last year, The Paradox of Middle Class Christianity. Do a little study on the characteristics of the middle class. I want to pull out one or two. Number, number 21, this is by John Spacey on middle class culture. Number 21, entitlement. A characteristic of the middle class, entitlement. The sense that you are owed something without offering anything in return. <laughs> That's what entitlement is. Pugamina, Christianity. Me, me, me. Look at me. It's only about me. Me, me. Number 17. 17th characteristic, comfort and convenience, which is essentially this, following the path of Least resistance. Hey, if it's tough, I'm out of here, but if it's going to cost, I'm gone. Frederick Nietzsche, who was an anti-godist, an atheist, says this about culture and the demise of culture. Says this, that when we seek the path, path excuse me, of least resistance and we seek entitlement, it is the last signs of the death throes of a culture. He calls it the last man society. The last man society is where people see life's purpose as avoiding effort and pain. The death throes of a culture. I want to, I want to ask you to take a sober look uh, at Western culture. Are we watching the death throes of a Western culture? Why? Because we've placed ourselves at the center and we are purposeful at building the brand of self and we seek to sidestep, like Cheslin Colby, pain and effort because it's too hard. Purpose, temple, and finally, rulership and ownership, number one, purpose, number two, three people. The old covenant view of temple was brick and mortar, gold and everything, kiff. Jesus comes in John chapter 1 and tabernacles. He is the temple. And he comes with a mission. 
to make us the temple. And we move from the old covenant to the new covenant, where in temple language, it, it is no longer focused on brick and mortar and buildings in place, to living stones and the treasure of people. And when we talk temple, we realize that people are the most precious commodity in all the earth. You read Psalm 132, when Yahweh is king seated on the throne, what happens? The poor are looked after. The people are satisfied. The, the priests, us, we are clothed. There is righteousness. There is joy in the land. Why? Because for our king, for Christ, the incarnation of Yahweh, people, everything. How do we live? We live in a material world. Madonna. <laughs> we live in a material world. We live where, as David F. Wells says, we, we are tied up in modern consumption. And he says this, David, David Wells, in his book, Above All Earthly Powers, says this, the reality is that modern consumption, materialism, where we are placing emphasis on stuff as opposed to people. Modern consumption is not simply about shopping because what we are buying is not simply goods and services. Modern consumption is about buying meaning for ourselves. Come on. That's what it is. Why? Because we placed ourselves at the center. Because stuff is more important than people. And how people perceive me is everything. The beginnings of marketing started with Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, 1928. I want to tell you what Jung and Freud said when they landed in New York watching the Statue of Liberty. Their arrival was very much anticipated by the American intelligentsia, of course, and by the way, I studied psychology. And those interested in the nascent field of psychology, the revolutionary th is theories of the, of the psyche from Europe had many implications. Freud, this is noted, and um, John Cousins writes, Freud turns to Jung and says, they do not realize we are bringing them the plague. Edward Bernays, influenced by his uncle, Sigmund Freud, says this, Bernays, let me say, developed the concept of modern public relations and marketing in the 1920s. He codified his ideas in a book called Propaganda. His thesis was that public relations marketing, as, as this person writes, is a powerful mind control technique. This is what Edward Bernays says. I studied marketing, by the way. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Hello. Drop the mic. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. It is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. So when we buy things, we have been told, prior to Edward Bernays, when you bought a good or a service, it was, it was function and purpose. Now, it's all about form and perception. 
So on the North Coast, there are so many Darth Vader cars driving around, you cannot believe it. I called the new Defender the Darth Vader car. And they buy the car and they just say, look at me, I am your father. Why? Because society now, and possibly a percentage seated here, invite me back, please, is more concerned about the accumulation of material things at the expense of people. And Temple says, it's not about brick and mortar. It's about living stones. It's about the person next to you. It's about how you position your life for the sake of the person next to you. You didn't want me to come and preach today. But you did. Psalm 132, as I close, starts with David in the beginning. Self-denial, and he's handed a crown. But is it really about David? It's about the true David. His name is Jesus. The one who deserves the center. The one who deserved to take the center. The one who deserved to conquer all lessers and take his throne. But would never, ever take it. Why? Because he was looking forward to a living temple. You and me. I want you to think of that. And he has received a crown above all crowns. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You are sitting here today and I want you, I want you to know something. Christ came as the true David because his singular pursuit was to set up the temple of God, Yahweh, upon the earth because we have a mission. And the mission is this, not to crowd away and crawl away in fear or not to cast off restraint and live for self, but to follow the way of the king in the expanding temple of God in righteousness and joy, in clothing people, in looking after people, Come on, you know, Taubombeki and Dipslut and Alexandria and next door to you. But the only way there is when Christ is king. And then the one who came, the true David, came and should have taken the throne. He could have taken the throne. And there on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I have not come to judge the world, but to reconcile and deliver the world from the bondage of sin. He laid down his life, not that he would gain his life back, but that we would gain our lives back. And so how do we respond? Very simple. Two things if you are here today and you've been a Jesus follower from, for any measure of time. In the name of Jesus, stop building the brand of dot, dot, dot. It will cost you everything. But if you follow him, I don't have it all together. Just want you to know, this is a daily confession. Number two, if you have never followed Jesus or you believe that church saves you, I want you to know that coming to Lifehouse is not going to save you. You're putting yourself in the way of the truth, but it's not going to save you. Jesus alone is our Savior and our Lord. And it is following him. That saves us. It's not being a good person that saves us. It's not being a nice oak that saves us. It is this. I cannot do it. I've tried for so long. My life is a wreck. Jesus, you are the one. You are the true David. You are Messiah. 
You are the one that will transform my life. I step off of my throne and I say, please take your rightful place. In the same way as in his incarnation, he didn't come and take it. He will not come and take your place. He is not a control freak. He is not a manipulator. He woos us in his breathtaking love. And as we lay down, he takes a seat and then he bestows crowns upon our head. And so I want to speak to the last group of people first. If you've never, ever, ever chosen Christ as your king to say, let me become your temple. Today's your day. I'm not asking anybody to close their eyes. Why would we want to close our eyes? nothing to hide because at the end of the age the one who was naked on a cross saying father forgive them with every person throughout the ages watching will say come Bradshaw I remember my boy Ryan calling you muscles come here here is my son come on Louise I know Ryan calls you Lou from time to time and you get fed up but come here you are my daughter and he proudly parades his people why would we close our eyes if you are here today and you want to Lay down your life and die to self and follow Christ, the King of all glory, the temple maker. I want to ask you with every eye open to lift your hand and say, I want to start following Jesus. And he says, come, follow me and I will make you. He's not looking for preparationism, that everything's perfect. I've repented of all things. Rubbish, you can't. He just says, come, follow me. And in the process of following, I will make you.